good morning, New Life Church. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be continuing in the book of Matthew. If you have a Bible, open it up to chapter 4 of Matthew. That should be about three-quarters of the way through the book, the entire book, the Bible. Plop those down on your laps so you can follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible, talk with me afterwards. Let's get you a Bible. We love this book. The words of God are here. Um, if you're watching from home, it will likely come up on the screen so you can read that way, but still pull your Bibles out. I would love for you to have it in your hand and, and recognize how it sits on the page and, and where these things are. Uh, we want people to be familiar with this book. So turn to chapter 4 of Matthew. Don't you want a champion? A person that can excel in the midst of adversity or opposition? There is a thrill when you read of warriors that could beat back the enemy. There is a joy watching a basketball player perfectly wield their body to get the ball to the basket. There's something encouraging when a leader stands in fortitude and wisdom and can be trusted. And if someone can stand against the greatest opposition, I want to know about it. And I think it is so appealing because we experience opposition all the time and it is not a given that we are victorious, right? It is not a given that we remain standing. And one of the greatest and ever-present foes is sin. The engagement of the cursed ways of the world rather than God's ways. The temptation to engage the crooked is constant. To take the easy path rather than the righteous path. To take the path to our appetites or our passions. It is ever present the temptation to pursue our glory over God's glory. In fact, I was thinking about this. Of the best movies of all time, if you rate them, most of them at the top are not about people living righteously, but those fully succumb to their brokenness because the alternative would not be believable. Humans fall. That's the assumption. We are used to failures and broken people, not champions of righteousness. But there is a champion. And Matthew will show us the blow-by-blow blow of his first noted victory against the opposition. In Matthew 4, while walking through the wilderness in the testing of the devil, Jesus triumphs where Adam and Israel capitulated. Jesus triumphs where all mankind has failed. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 4 of the book of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, if you recall from last week, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. And that serves as a kickoff of the ministry of Jesus. And during the process, the Spirit comes down and God the Father says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus' identity has been proclaimed and his power anointed. The entire Godhead, the Trinity, all involved. It is a powerful moment, right? 
And what happens next? Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Does anyone else think that is just odd? Great, I'm the one. I'm the one in the room. Thank, thanks. If Jesus is going to start a ministry, if his identity has just been proclaimed, wouldn't it be good to go somewhere where people are? Maybe go to a city, start talking to people? It doesn't make sense if you were thinking about how to affect a plan, how to start ministering to people to go to the wilderness and be tempted by the devil. But if instead all of this book is a container, an outline given long ago that can be filled up or fulfilled by someone in the future, then this story overflows with meaning and purpose. Remember, all of this book, specifically the beginning part, the beginning three quarters of this book, is a container that is filled to overflowing with the person and work of Jesus. So Jesus led up by the Spirit. God knows what He is doing. It is with purpose that the Spirit sets Him out into the wilderness. God is not caught unaware by the visitor in the wilderness. The devil does not surprise God. God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit know that the devil is there to tempt or to test Jesus. God the Spirit sends Jesus to the wilderness knowingly and purposefully. And if you've read this book a fair amount, you know that the wilderness is a familiar backdrop in Scripture, right? Do you remember any of the times the wilderness is a prominent character in Scripture? Perhaps you remember the prophets they're often in the wilderness. Or maybe David's wanderings when he's, when he's trying to get away from Saul who wants to kill him. But the most foundational would be the wanderings of the people of Israel in the wilderness. If you recall the story of the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that's this first tenth or so of this book. It tells the story of the forming of the people of God. The people with whom God made promises. The people who found themselves enslaved in Egypt. And God heard them and rescued them and led them to a promised land, Canaan. But when presented with God's plan, they rejected it. They don't trust him. And as a result, they find themselves wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, for 40 years. And at the end of the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, probably that one you skip a lot, right? After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they are by the Jordan River. In the wilderness, looking into the promised land, ready to accept what God gives. 40 years in the, 40 years in the wilderness before embarking on God's plan. Does this start to look familiar? Where was Jesus baptized? The Jordan. Where is he now? He's in the wilderness. How long did he fast? Forty days. Okay, we're getting close. We're getting close. And remember, this book, this gospel account of Jesus is written with a Jewish audience in mind. And of all the books, the Torah is theirs. 
They love this book. They know it front to back. They know Deuteronomy. They didn't skip Deuteronomy. They probably have Deuteronomy memorized. These references would be popping off the page. And to drive it home a little bit more before we get going, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, there is a long monologue from Moses, specifically chapters 6 through 9 or so. They get to the Jordan, and Moses goes and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Hmm. And after he fasts, he tells all the people, here is the God who has promised to you. Here is what he is giving you and what you should do in response. We read some of those words at the beginning of our service this morning. Here is another. This is from Deuteronomy 8, verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Israel needed this reminder because much of their time in the wilderness was spent grumbling. When given the temptation to sin, they were taking it. When given the opportunity to trust God, they were ignoring it. We have the Jordan. We have the wilderness. We have the fasting. We have the language of sonship. Now Jesus is taking the container and filling it up and showing us a different way. In verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil shows up in the wilderness. The tempter. All the thrust of the opposition. The gloves are off. People of God have been falling in the wilderness for millennia, and the devil wants this to be no different. And he comes with a proposition. A direct attack on what we just heard God the Father say. God the Father had just said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the devil comes up to Jesus and starts attempting to twist God's words. The devil says, if you are, in this if, a first-class condition, don't, don't worry about that, it's technical, but it means if this is true, and I think it is, then you should use that reality this way. If you are, then turn these stones to bread. The devil is attempting to tempt Jesus to exploit the privileges of being the Son of God. This would be to ignore the other members of the Trinity and fall out of humble submission to them. Jesus is the Son, desiring to and perfectly submitting to the Father. He is sent out by the Spirit. The Gospel talks of Him being filled with the Spirit or empowered by the Spirit. Jesus works in perfect relationship with the Spirit and the Father. But here the devil, the tempter, is enticing him to go rogue. Do this on your own. Meet your own needs. Jesus does not go rogue. That's good news, right? Jesus does not go rogue. Amen? Jesus does not do what wilderness wanderers have done in the past. And this, in the moment, is the perfect need the devil can exploit, right? He hasn't been eating for 40 days. 
He's in the middle of the wilderness. I fasted for a couple days before. I start tripping pretty quick. Forty days in the middle of the wilderness. The God who created the universe, including the rocks to which the devil points, is the God who became a man and is standing there in the wilderness, a hungry man with real hunger pains gripping his stomach, weakening his body, vying for focus in his thoughts. And now the devil arrives and says, you don't have to be hungry anymore if you are the Son of God. You can act on your own prerogative and you can turn these, breads to st- you can turn these stones to bread. And friends, Jesus has complete ability In fact, in the the narrative of Matthew, we just heard John say, God can make children out of stones if he wanted to. He can make other sons of Abraham. Remember that? But Jesus will not go rogue. Later on in the story, we see Jesus doing miracles, feeding 5,000 people with just a couple loaves of bread and some fish. Ability is there, but Jesus will not go rogue. Jesus stands in the wilderness hungry with the opportunity to satiate the hunger. Who else was tempted by food? If you were to go back to the beginning of this book, all the way to Genesis, Genesis 2 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the story of the first man. It starts in a lovely garden with God and ends in brokenness away from God that we all now experience. And the brokenness starts with an unwanted visitor twisting words. In Genesis 3, The serpent, the tempter, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And you know the rest of the story. He questions, he twists, he changes. And when given the opportunity to not trust God, they pluck the fruit from the tree. How fascinating is that? Adam and Eve, surrounded by trees full of food, capitulate to the temptation, surrender to the enticement, to take the food that God said to avoid. And now Jesus stands in a place void of food and is given temptation to make his own. One of these things is harder. If I don't eat from this tree in the garden... I can still satisfy my hunger with all the other trees. If I don't make bread in the wilderness, I remain hungry. Who else was in the wilderness hungry? Israel, walking through the wilderness. When the hunger pains struck, they open their mouths and start complaining and distrusting. We should go back to Egypt. You brought us out here to kill us. We don't have food. You brought us out here to kill us. We don't have any food. 
And if you know the story, God shows up and provides manna, bread on the ground in the wilderness. It's fitting together. The path in the wilderness has been walked before. When in the wilderness, Jesus is given the same opportunity, he opens his mouth and chooses a different route. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes scripture. Scripture from specifically Deuteronomy. This is from chapter 8, verse 3. The same words that Moses gave to the people of Israel to remind them of the God they serve. This is the whole verse. Moses says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is saying, I will not take this opportunity to serve my belly over my God. Bread is important, yes, but it does not supersede the words that come from the mouth of God. I will not allow my belly to cause me to go it alone. It is not worth closing my ears to the Lord to satisfy my belly. The, day, the devil takes a good swing, and where others have fallen, Jesus blocks it. The devil is not done opposing. In verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil responds to the first round by taking him to a place of height. They go to the holy city, to Jerusalem, to the temple, and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. Frankly, we are not sure what the pinnacle is. It could have been the point on the top of the temple itself. If you have been to Jerusalem or seen pictures, you know that the temple area is built on top of a mountain. And a huge platform is built atop the mound with the south side looking over the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley swoops down below you. And standing on a corner there on that platform is an abrupt and precipitous drop. And you see the whole valley in the city below. A dramatic place to stand, to be sure. Wherever they are standing, it is a place where danger would come if you fell off. That's the point. And while standing there, it is as though the tempter heard the words of Scripture out of Jesus' mouth from the last round and says, oh, you want to quote Scripture? I can quote Scripture. Let's do that. The devil says, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He is quoting from Psalm 91, 11 and 12. He says, oh yeah, I know Scripture. I was listening to the Psalms for summer series. I, I, know, I know Psalm 91. The devil says, do what it says, Jesus. If God cares about you, it says in the Psalms that he has angels to take care of you and your feet cannot strike a stone. Beware the proof text plucked out of context, my friends. This is how the devil works. These words... These, these are the words of context in Psalm 91. Let me just read Psalm 91. It's lovely. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide 
in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The psalm says, for those that make the Lord their refuge, there is protection found in him. There is protection because there is still evil around the persons. Battles and arrows, pestilence and destruction But the things that other people fear will not be a cause of fear for he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. What it does not say, but the devil implies, is that you are nigh invincible. If you put yourself in danger, you can bind God up by his promises, and he has to catch your fall. When the psalm speaks of protection from external need, the devil is encouraging Jesus to make the need to force the need, to force God's hand. And again, this is calling on Jesus to act in isolation, to attempt to force the other members of the Trinity to do something, to not act in submission and right relationship with them, which is to act in an unrighteous way. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Something fascinating here is that that test is the language used for what the devil is doing to Jesus in the wilderness. Tempt, test, it's the same word. The devil is enticing Jesus to treat God like the devil is treating Jesus. Who thinks that's a good posture? It's not a good posture. And Jesus again quotes scripture with an emphatic answer. And where does this quote come from? Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Honestly, it would be a great benefit to you to just steep in Deuteronomy, at least 6 through 9. Just read those and see how connected these are. Matthew 4 and Deuteronomy 6 through 9. These are the words of Moses to Israel in Deuteronomy 6. He says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Others in the wilderness took the opportunity to test God. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. You even hear echoes of the promises of protection in Psalm 91. 
Jesus continues to quote Deuteronomy because he is walking through the wilderness and excelling where others have fallen. He is doing what is right and good in the sight of the Lord where others have tested the Lord or done what is unrighteous. Jesus is taking the punches of the opposition and standing. He is experiencing the temptation to sin and rebuffing it. But the devil is coming in with a haymaker. In verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The devil whisks him away from Jerusalem to somewhere with a high vantage point so that each of the kingdoms of the world can be seen. Every expansive dominion, every seat of government, every throne, every crown, all that exude a touch of glory or demand a bit of fear in their subjects, all the kingdoms of the world the devil places before Jesus and proposes an exchange. All of these for a single act of worship. Just bend the knee. Just kiss my feet just this once. This proposition is immense. The gains are huge. And the lies and the temptations from the devil are slippery. First, the devil is working from the assumption that the kingdoms are his to give. There is a sense in Scripture that the devil is the ruler of this world, that there is some influence and authority that the devil has over the affairs of the kingdoms of men as they give their allegiance to him. But even that is not outside the authority of the one true God. In fact, in Deuteronomy, God tells the people of Israel that they are going into Canaan and he will give them the kings and the kingdoms of that place. The devil, as is typical, is rebelliously putting himself in the place of God. Ponder back to Job. Remember Job. The devil needs permission to even touch Job. The devil here is bargaining with kingdoms that are not his to give. This is like a child bargaining with his father with the toys he let him hold. You are working from the wrong premise, devil. And secondly, he is talking to the Son of God. What is the end of the Son of God? He is the King of kings. Every knee shall bow to the King. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The future for Jesus in that moment is that all kingdoms will belong to Jesus. They are his inheritance. All the knees of all the kings will bow to Jesus, willingly or not. All authority and dominion and honor and power and glory will be heaped on the name of Jesus. Amen? I don't know what the devil knew about the means to that glory but we know that Jesus knew the path to that glory. And the path to that glory is through pain and suffering. 
The path to that glory is through the cross and death. In Hebrews 12, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The throne is coming for Jesus, but it comes through the path of the cross, the path of pain, the path of death, the path of suffering like no one has ever imagined. There is often a misunderstanding that Jesus could not experience temptation because he was sinless. He was cheating. It doesn't count. He could not sin, so he can't really experience temptation. The weight, the difficulty, the clouding of the mind, and the palpability of the moment. Friends, he experienced temptation like we cannot fathom. We fall at the little temptations when our stomach is involved. When our passions are involved, when our appetites are involved, Jesus took the blows of temptation about getting his rightful glory through a painless way. The devil stood before him, before all the kingdoms, and said, One crack of the knee, one homage to me, one bow to me. Picture having to ponder what you will endure and being given an opportunity to avoid it. Picture temptation toward relief. Oh, friends, Jesus experienced temptation like we cannot comprehend. And he felt the weight all the more because he is sinless. He never yielded. The steel experiences the hammer on the anvil like the glass never can. We are the glass, and he is the steel that took blow after blow after blow. Beating after beating and never gave in. Never went rogue. Never isolated away from the Father and the Spirit. He walked through the wilderness. The new Adam and the new Israel walked where they walked. Walked where they failed. Walked where we failed. And he did it without sin. Without grumbling. Without surrender. Without capitulation. The devil tempts with this final attempt, spreads all the kingdoms before Jesus that will rightly be his and says, you can have this by only experiencing a little pain. The pain of the bend of your knee to the ground in front of me. Doesn't that sound appealing? Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only Shall you serve? Can we just bask in that for a bit? Can we bask, bask in the glory of our champion? There was a moment nearly 2,000 years ago when Jesus stood, a moment when he was given an easy out, and if he takes it, we all lose. The cross is not ours anymore. His sacrifice is not ours. His resurrection is not ours. His life is not ours. We lose our adoption and our future and our inheritance. It is all gone if Jesus takes the easy way out, if he bends the knee. And thank God he doesn't. Be gone, Satan. He pushes him back unwaveringly, without doubt, without regret, without hesitation, what a thrilling final swing. That's good news, friends. 
Jesus quotes, he quotes from, altogether, Deuteronomy. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Moses again speaking and warning the people not to go after other gods. To not be tempted to serve the gods of people who will be around you. Moses says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, kingdoms they did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. These words have been spoken before, but the hearers failed. And now Jesus quotes them as He walks through the same wilderness. This is the victory of the new man, the new Adam, the new Moses, the new Israel. Jesus walked where they all walked and where they surrendered. He is victorious. Jesus walks where we have walked and where we fail. He is triumphant. The king is a champion against even the greatest opposition. The final verse. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And this ending is so beautiful. The devil tried to twist the words of Psalm 91 for his own ends. And Jesus rebuffs him, and he left. And see, behold, the angels came. The angels came and were ministering to him. Even the end of this story ensures that God keeps his promises. He is good, and thus his promises are good. Friends, this Jesus is your king. This Jesus is your champion. This Jesus is the new Adam who makes a new humanity and connects you to himself. Hebrews takes up the theme when the writer says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Be encouraged that this same King Jesus that walked through the wilderness unstained is the King Jesus that set his face toward the cross to die a death for your sins. This champion died your death for you. For every time you gave in to the enemy, you took the bait of the opposition. Every time you did the thing you knew you should not do. For every action that is the secret you have in the back of your mind. 
Every action you have done that fills you with shame. Every memory of following the enticement of the crooked. Every time you capitulated. Every time you surrendered. He died for every failure. And he rose again to be your brother. A brother that bends his ears to hear your prayers. When you cry out to this king, your pleadings do not fall on uncomprehending ears. His are sympathetic. He knows the weight of temptation. When it is appealing to your appetites or your passion, he has been there. When it appeals to an easier, false way of reading scripture, he has been there. When it is an opportunity to go toward the right ends by the wrong means, he has stood in that place. When it is an appeal to do on your own aside from God, he has walked that path and taken the bruises. And because of all of that, he is able to help you. He walked victorious through the wilderness and is able to help you. If you want to talk or pray after this service, I'm available. Pastor Tim's available. We would be glad to talk to Jesus with you. Where others have surrendered or capitulated, he is triumphant. Let's pray to Jesus and sing to Jesus. Jesus, you have walked where we have walked and dealt with the weight that we have felt and even more so. But where our knees buckle under the burden, yours remains strong. You are indeed powerful and mighty, and we are grateful that our King withstood the strongest temptations. Thank you for spurning the temptations and resolutely setting your face to the cross for your joy and for our great benefit. We belong to you because you died for us. And we sing now as those saved, redeemed, bought, adopted by your work. Resonate those truths in our hearts as we sing. It is in your name we pray. Amen.